and born out of uh, a man who had to deeply trust in the Lord. Uh, Those words are someone who has gone through the water and passed through the fire and has tested and proved that the Lord is faithful. Amen? Amen. Amen. Please bear with me this morning. I'm getting over a head cold and I can't hear anything. And um, I'm praying that my voice will hold out. So please be praying for me as well. Religious pluralism has so thoroughly worked its way into the warp and woof of our society that the average person, the nun, sort of smirks at the exclusive truth claims of the Christian faith. Wed as it has been in the development of modernity to moral relativism, who are we to really claim that we have a corner on the truth? It's hard to go very far in the Gospels without confronting the exclusive truth claims of Jesus and the disciples and the gospel. But there have always been those throughout the history of the church that have tried to make the way broader to allow those who, in their opinion, should have made it in. The 12th century Italian poet had the Roman poet Virgil as his guide through the divine comedy, Dante. And some of the early fathers thought for sure Plato and Aristotle should be included among the faithful. But the Apostle John has already made it clear several times that even his own people, that is even the Jews who had the scriptures, who had the covenants, who had the oracles of God, even they rejected the testimony of Jesus. Interestingly, to this very day, there is a group of people called the Mandaeans who live in modern-day Iraq and Iran who trace their religion and ethnic heritage back to John the Baptist. They continue the process of baptism for repentance, and not just for repentance, but baptism for all kinds of things. They're like people of the river is what they're called. And the, the Baptists would be ashamed, as he said at the last verse of the sermon we talked about last week, he must increase and I must decrease. And some 2,000 years ago, this sect still traces their lineage back to John the Baptist. They missed the point. What John was doing was pointing to the Savior. He was pointing to Jesus Christ and saying, salvation is through him alone. I am merely a messenger. The Apostle John, in a very characteristic fashion, concludes chapter 3, which we're concluding today with a reflection that seamlessly weaves together the discussion that Jesus has with Nicodemus and the discussion that John the Baptist has with his disciples. He takes the themes from both of them and concludes chapter 3. And the Apostle outlines in these verses the superiority of Christ. Why is it that Jesus must increase and John decrease? And so, as we read this text together this morning, I want you to keep this question in mind. How is Christ superior? As you are able, please stand with me together as we hear from the Gospel according to John, beginning in chapter 3, starting in verse 31. It's also printed for you in your bulletin. 
He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the Word made flesh who came and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. We have received the testimony. We set our seal to this, that you are true. And you, O Lord, have spoken to us in your word. Open our hearts to receive it now. For we pray this in the strong name of Jesus, the superior name of Jesus. And amen. Amen. You may be seated. Notice from the ESV that John's answer to his disciples' questions ends at verse 30. There's a, the end of the quotation marks there. And John picks up the discourse, and I, I mean the Apostle John. It's, of course, been confusing going back with these two Johns, which is why John the Baptist is always called the Baptist. It's not because he's a Baptist, but because that was his function and calling. Uh, it's not as if... John the Presbyterian versus John the Baptist. That's not what we're talking about. Uh, So the Apostle John, who, by the way, is writing this narrative. Why? So that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We began our series looking at those verses from John 20, verse 31. And he ends this section, which is really a tour de force through salvation history. He began in chapter 2, verse 23, outlining the problem facing mankind, sin. And he works backward through the application of salvation through the Spirit in the new birth to the purchase of that salvation by the lifting up of the Son on the cross, which was, of course, John 3.16, the plan of the Father. That he loved the world so much that he sent his son to be the savior. To be the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And despite how in hindsight it might be clear to us. Nicodemus seemed to walk away with more questions unanswered than answered. Which is the crimson thread that runs through this whole discourse. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. We saw that last week in John 3.27. And it's just here that John takes the opportunity to extol the goodness and the superiority of Christ. And he sets down what can be distilled into three heads. The station of Christ, the authority of Christ, and the two opposite responses to him. 
all of which paints a picture of the absolute supremacy of Christ, especially over and against the ministry of men, such as John the Baptist. Let's look first at the superiority of Christ in regards to his station. He comes from above. Notice in verse 31 that John, wishing to make the point, emphatically repeats himself. He who comes from above is above all. He who comes from heaven is above all. He says it twice. And sandwiched in the middle of these two emphatic statements is the ministry of men. Literally, in the Greek, it reads, The one from the earth is from the earth, and from the earth he speaks. He's an earthling. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, how else would someone from the earth speak? But what the Apostle John is driving at is the nature of the earthling's ministry. He can only speak about what he has seen, about what he has heard, which may include divine revelation, as John the Baptist surely had, but is by nature limited. Limited to what God has revealed to that prophet to speak. And he cannot go beyond the bounds of what God has said. Otherwise, he would be sinful. But not so with Christ. Christ is enfleshed as an earthling, as someone from the earth, but he comes from above, linking us back to his discourse on the divine Word, the Lagos, in his prologue. And there the Word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. He tabernacled with us and we saw his glory. But his original place was at the Father's side. He came to make the Father known to us. For as earthlings, we have no observational access to God the Father. All must be mediated to us. But Jesus came from above to bear witness to what he had seen and heard, making known to us what remained impossibly distant. To bear witness or to give testimony is the ability to confirm or attest to something that you have personal knowledge of, something that you saw or you heard. In the courtroom, a witness to a crime will be called to the stand to give an account of what they have seen. That's witness, witnessed, I witnessed this happen. And I give my, uh, my testimony that it is true. And the question is, then, what testimony does Jesus have? Well, we need to back up and we need to think in terms of this whole chapter. Jesus chastises Nicodemus for not understanding the new birth. Because it was an earthly thing. Remember, he told them, how could I tell you earthly things and you don't understand? Then how could I tell you heavenly things? If you don't understand these things that have already been revealed, we notice that came from Ezekiel, and the washing of the Spirit and giving of new heart was already laid down for them in Scripture. Then how would he go on to teach them heavenly things which had not yet been revealed? Of course, it's doubtful that even his own disciples understood the Son of Man being lifted up was likened to the bronze serpent until after his crucifixion. Until after he was crucified, then they began to connect it. Oh, he told us this would happen. He said he would be lifted up and it would, it would be like 
when Moses lifted the serpent up in the wilderness. But that it was a part of the Father's plan all along and that it was set in motion by his great love for the world, that remained a mystery, a mystery that Jesus had come to reveal. The things that Jesus saw and heard are none other than the plan that the Father and the Son covenanted together to save a people from sin and restore them to a place of blessing. Now, obviously, this makes his testimony more important and incomparable to to those who up till then only had half the story. The prophets, a ministry of men, typified by John the Baptist, they had spoken to the people of God, whatever God had revealed to them. But their access to God was mediated through dreams and, and visions and was limited. Although they sought the Lord for more, as Peter points out in 1 Peter 1.10, he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. And it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you by to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels longed to look. You see, Jesus is the one who reveals the mysteries that the prophets longed to understand. And the testimony, if Jesus is incomparable to the witness of any man who ministered before him because he came from above but also because he was above all. He not only came from a different location with access to better information than all of the prophets, but he came from a station of excellence, incomparable to anyone else. Sometimes when there is a problem, say with how something is made, it's helpful to go back to the one who designed it, the engineer, and to get his take on what's wrong. Why is this functioning this way? Why did it go wrong? Well, if he planned it, if he designed it, there's a good chance that he has intimate knowledge and he might be able to help you find a solution to the problem, being closer to its creation. Now expand that and add in the fact that Christ, as the second person of the Trinity and the one by whom all things were made, is also omniscient. He knows all things. You're going to want to pay attention when he comes and he offers a solution to the problem facing mankind. The prophets who came before, they spoke as finite men on the problems that only God could adequately address. Hence, their reliance on the word of God. But Jesus, by virtue of his station as God in the flesh and having been sent by God, when he speaks, he utters the words of God. Verse 34. Not in a measured way, like all those who were given a measure of the Spirit. You might think, okay, a a small quantity of the Spirit was given to them. And they're going to speak out of that measure. But to Jesus, it was given without measure. When John the Baptist sees Jesus in his baptism, the Spirit remains on him. And that is what differentiates Jesus from all other prophets. He is filled with the Spirit. But that's not all he gave the Son. He also gave all 
things into his hand. Verse 35. And that is an expression of authority and power. An expression of lordship. Jesus is Lord. Became the confession of the early church. All things had been given into his hand. Because the Father loves the Son, he gave him authority over everything. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, For God put all things under subjection under him. And then, after all things were made subject to him, he hands over the kingdom to the Father, including himself, making himself subject to God, so that God may be all in all, Paul says. When the Son has accomplished his mission, outlined in verses 16 through 21, God sent him to save the world. When he accomplishes that mission, he will hand over the kingdom to his Father. A kingdom hard won. A kingdom he gave his very life to secure. A kingdom made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And the fact that all authority has been given to Jesus is on full display throughout the Gospel of John. He is a man of authority. He goes where he wants to go. He meets the people he wants to meet. When he's ready to die, he gives up his life. He is in control. Everything he does. And we're going to see that next week when we begin chapter 4 and him passing through Samaria just so he can meet this woman at the well. Intentionally. He does everything intentionally. But he situates this authority, this power, this lordship in ways that are striking and lead to his people rejecting him and his authority. Let me give you one example from chapter 13 of John. This is uh, beginning in verse 1. He says, Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During the supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now listen to this. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, He rose from the supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. Notice what Jesus does. It's the exact same phrase that's in our text. Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come from God and that he's going back to God, he rose from the table and thunderbolts came from his hands and he devoured that betrayer. And then he put down 
all oppression against him with his might as he called legions of angels. And they overthrew the Romans. And he established a kingdom of power and authority. Is that what happened? Knowing that the Father had given him all authority, he takes off his outer garments. He wraps himself in a towel and he gets down on his knees and he does something that even a slave would not do. He washes his disciples' feet. The Gentiles and the rulers will lord their authority over you. But not so in my kingdom. But the least of you will be the greatest. And Jesus shows what kind of Lord he is. He's a kind of Lord who came and offered up his very life. Who died a humiliating, shameful death on your behalf. Naked on the cross. To be spit at and mocked and derided. He said he could save himself. Bring yourself down from the cross. Call down angels. And they mocked his kind of authority. This action does one of two things. It either endears you to Jesus, as you see in this act, someone who possesses all authority and is filled with the Spirit and comes from God for the express purpose of laying down his life to save you. And you are endeared to him for life. Or it causes you to turn away and reject him because that's not the kind of power you want your Messiah to have. You want the kind of Messiah that kicks butt and takes names. And that's not what Jesus did. He laid down his life and he calls you to do the same thing. So how is Christ superior? He's superior because he comes from above, because he is above all. He is superior because of who he is he, and because of what he has seen and heard and what he bears witness to and because of the authority given to him by God. But his superiority, it demands a response. You cannot remain neutral when it comes to Jesus. He is either superior now and you believe it, which leads you to follow him in faith-filled obedience, or you don't. And you turn in disobedience. But one day, he will show himself superior finally. And in the end, when you do obey... It will be at the edge of the sword when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. Everyone will make that confession. You either do it now because you see he is Lord and he's worthy of following or you reject him. Jesus, who is superior because he comes from above, is also owed obedience. All this true truth the Apostle John heaps upon us in concluding this episode makes certain demands of us. And John balances the pessimism of all the rejection of Jesus' testimony with the surprising implied but of verse 33. Whoever receives, and we have seen that verb before, and it means more than just taking something you're handed. It means to believe. 
as will become clear in a moment, it also means to obey. When you receive the testimony of Jesus, you accept it as true. And by accepting it, you recognize that it places certain demands on your life. Demands that require obedience. But before we go any further down the road of those who do receive the testimony of Jesus, let us first consider the opposite. If receiving the testimony of Jesus confirms that God is true, what does rejecting the testimony of Jesus say? It says that God is a liar. Before we get to why this is a very bad idea to call God a liar, what exactly are we rejecting when we reject the testimony of Jesus? John elaborates on this in his first letter, which we read verse 10 for our confession of sin. But backing up to verse 9, it says, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. The testimony is John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The testimony is life is found in the son. And notice what happens when you reject the son. You make God a liar. By rejecting the son you implicitly say, I can find life another way. I don't need Jesus for my life. I can find it here or here or here. And I reject you. And you say, God, you're a liar. Life can be found elsewhere. This tactic is as old as sin. Satan used this in the garden. Did God actually say the first time that doubt is introduced to the people of God over the goodness of God? Is God actually good? I think God's lying to you. I think you can go at it your own way. I think you can have life. Just take this fruit. It looks so good. You'll be wise. You'll be just like God. You'll have your own life. And we've been believing that lie ever since. And they broke covenant with God and they chose life apart from his word, plunging all of humanity into sin and death. But I want you to notice that John frames this in terms of disobedience. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Pay attention to the tenses of the verbs. Rejecting the Son through disobedience means you will not see life in the future. But in the present, you are consigned. We could say you are damned to have the wrath of God remain on you forever. That is your present experience of God's wrath upon you will continue forever and ever and ever. So it is like this. Every person born in Adam is born with a sentence of judgment hanging around their neck. Their perpetual experience is of God's wrath. We don't like to talk about judgment. We don't like to talk about hell or punishment or even sin. 
It seems unloving. It's not seeker-friendly or winsome. But of all the New Testament people, Jesus is the one who spoke most of hell. It is a very a real place, a place of torment and judgment, a place of God's wrath whose fires are never quenched. And the people long for an end that never, ever, ever comes in excruciating pain and anguish separated from God for all of eternity. The antithesis of eternal life is eternal death. And that's what you choose when you choose to reject the Son. You reject life itself. And that choice is the same as disobedience. What what greater sin is there than unbelief? A rejection of Jesus is a rejection of Him as Lord. An unwillingness to submit to His authority over you. But the reason they disobeyed, John had already made plain. People loved the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Lest his works should be exposed. Verse 19 and 20. They disobey because they love their sin. And they don't want to forsake it. They trade a lifetime of pleasures of sin for an eternity of punishment in hell. Those who make this trade often do so thinking that there will be no consequences in the end. Or that they will have time to change before the end. But God will not be mocked. What you sow, that will you also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life. As Paul says in Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Paul is speaking to saints who are no longer under God's wrath for sin, and yet lest we think sin is something that can be trifled with, John shows the outcome of those who through disobedience earn for themselves eternal perdition. And there's a warning here for all of us. For those who have received the testimony of Jesus, who have believed in Him, not to make disobedience to God a light thing. We must always keep the outcome of our sin in our peripheral vision. It is true, fear is not the greatest motivator to obedience. But it is at least one kind of motivation. The command to fear God in the scriptures does not mean that you are afraid of him, but that you reverence and you stand in awe of him. That you worship and obey him as one deserving of that kind of a response. One aspect of reverencing God rightly is to see that every sin is against him. It's against him, against his character. David cries out in Psalm 51.4, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Not knowing the context, you might conclude that David had made an idol and worshipped it or was running to a different God. But what he really did was disobey. He broke God's law. He had coveted another man's wife. He broke the tenth commandment. And then he stole her and lay with her, breaking the eighth and the seventh commandment. And then he had her husband murdered and lied about it, breaking the sixth and the ninth commandments. Every time we break God's law, we sin against him as the lawgiver. 
For the law is the very embodiment of God and our rule of life. We are warned then that every act of disobedience in us is essentially calling God a liar. But God is not a liar. God is truth. And everyone who receives the Son confirms this. That's what John means in verse 32 when someone sets their seal to this, that they confirm it to be true. Have you ever thought of your believing in Jesus in that way? What could be more honoring to God than to believe his promises are true? During the Reformation, one of the theological battlegrounds was over assurance. Roman Catholics believed that if assurance was possible, people would tend toward taking advantage of that through license. In a sense, if assured that they would be saved, they would disregard the church and the church's sacraments and abandon her. And certainly people did do this, but only those who were Christian in name only and had not been born again. The reformers countered by showing that having no assurance or no possibility of assurance actually dishonors God. Luther, just a few short years after the Diet of Worms in 1520, he published a tract called The Freedom of a Christian. In one of the sections on the power of faith, Luther said this, and quote, Could we ascribe to anyone anything greater than truthfulness, righteousness, and absolutely perfect goodness? Conversely, the greatest contempt is to suspect or to accuse someone publicly of being, in our opinion, a liar and wicked, which we do when we do not trust a person. So when the soul firmly believes the God who promises, it regards God as true and righteous. Nothing can show God greater respect. This is the highest worship of God, to bestow on God truthfulness and righteousness and whatever else ought to be ascribed to the one in whom a person trusts. Here, the soul submits itself to what God wishes Here it hallows God's name and allows itself to be treated according to God's good pleasure. This is because clinging to God's promises, the soul does not doubt that God is true, righteous, and wise. The one who will do, arrange, and care for everything in the best possible way. Conversely, what greater rebellion against God godlessness, and contempt of God is there than not to believe the one who promises. What is this? Either to make God a liar or to doubt that God is truthful. Or to put it another way, is this not to ascribe truthfulness to oneself and falsehood and vanity to God? In so doing, is one not denying God and setting oneself up as an idol in one's very heart? End quote. See, Luther shows that rather than faith emptying us of devotion to God, faith actually honors God more than if we engaged in works done slavishly out of fear and with no assurance that God would actually save us. What do you say about God when your anxious heart doubts his promises to be true for you? You may think that you are only trying not to be presumptive, But in reality, you're making God a liar. 
To receive the testimony of Jesus is to believe the promises of God for you. To believe that in Christ, God was reconciling you to himself. Not counting your sins against you, but forgiving you and restoring you and granting you the promise of eternal life. Accepting that by faith confirms that God is true. Just as we noted, the tenses of the verbs when he came to those who disobeyed, rejecting Jesus, also notice the tenses for those who believe. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That is a present tense verb. The unbeliever has God's wrath remaining on them, but you even now have eternal life. Jesus explains what eternal life is in John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We currently possess eternal life by faith because we have the Son. We have been brought by faith into such a close union with Him that His present possession of eternal life is also ours. But it's also something we will attain in the future. It's something we are laying hold of. We need to grab a hold of Christ and never let him go. He is your life. He is your present eternal life from which a future eternity with him awaits you. But notice that if unbelief is akin to disobedience, then belief must also include obedience. Many of you perhaps remember the lordship controversies of the 90s, when, which was really not a new controversy, but an old one fought by a new generation. Some asserted that faith was merely knowledge and assent. It was knowing that Jesus died for your sins and assenting to the truth of those propositions. But that faith did not include a commitment to obey. Sometimes this was called easy believism by those who, who responded that faith always includes a commitment to obedience. Jesus is Lord. And the very idea that Jesus is Lord implies that he is owed obedience. However imperfect and never arising to the level of meriting or earning a status before God. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer addressed this problem in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He said, only the obedient believe and only the believer obeys. Belief in part is stepping out in obedience. Because when Jesus is Lord, no one else can occupy that space or it turns into idolatry. The Puritan William Gurnall once said, when obedience falters, faith weakens. How can there be great faith where there is little faithfulness? See, the faith that trusts in Christ, clinging tenaciously to Christ for eternal life, is the kind of faith that rolls up its sleeves and gets to work. The kind of faith that saves is the kind of faith that obeys. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for the superiority of your Son who came from above, who is above all, who has all authority, who is Lord, who is even now ruling and reigning over the whole world until that great day when he puts the last enemy under his feet 
that day when he comes again in great glory and we are reunited with him, no longer separated by the eyes of faith, but we will see him as he is because we will be like him. Until that day, Father, may we render the kind of obedience that a Lord deserves. Our honor, our love, our compassion, and our willingness to lay down our lives to follow him. For we pray this in his strong name, and amen.